Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So, the last few weeks, we have been talking about this part of the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha explains four different primary practices, essentially, that we are invited to do with each one of the foundations of mindfulness. So basically, <laughs> I just realized a few weeks ago, I said, if you get lost, it's really simple to come back to these things. And then I just realized, well, if there's four things and four foundations, that's 16 things, which doesn't sound simple and basic at all in this moment. <laughs> so um, I swear it's simple, um, except in practice. But uh, but yeah, there's four four instructions and I the reason I was interested in talking about them is that I was going through some doubt a while back and was trying to just reground my practice and was trying to remember okay what are my basic tools what are my basic practices when I get lost what should I check in about so and I do this every so often just like checking back in with the basics of the Satipatthana Sutta just to make sure I haven't left anything out or ignored anything for too long so we went through the first, let's see, the first two. The first one was practicing internally and externally. So internal meditation and then working with our relationship with other as part of our practice. And then uh, the second one, which we did last week, was uh, inicha, impermanence. All the different ways that we can ground ourselves in our impermanent nature. So that was the second one. And then the third one we're going to do tonight. And the third one... <laughs> The third one's a bit tricky. So part of the reason the third one is tricky is that the translations that were given for this third line are often completely different depending on the scholar that's translating it. So when I was putting this talk together tonight, I had this aversion storm come up and I was like, I'm just going to skip this one. <laughs> I'm going to skip this one. I'm not going to talk about it because I couldn't figure out which translation to use. And they're so different. And I got really frustrated. And I was like, oh, man, if the monastic scholars could just kind of get together, decide on one translation, my job would be a lot easier. Um, so there was judgment that arose. I was like, where can I find the true translation so that when I come here on Wednesdays, I know that I am absolutely right in what I'm saying. So... I'm going to tell you why the translation is a little weird, um, and then I'm just going to give a talk on one of the translations. So we always have to remember that there was about 450, 500 years between the oral tradition uh, being passed on after the Buddha's death and things being written down. So I don't know about your memory, but a lot happens in 450 years. <laughs> I can barely remember movies I've seen or actors or other things that are important in my life. So when I think of 450 years, we don't really, you know, we don't really know what the Buddha taught. We have what's written down and we practice and we, we know that the practices work and we have that to, to ground us uh, in the integrity of the, the experience. But we just don't really know 
what was written down or why it was written down compared to what the oral tradition was prior. So 400 and 400 plus years is a long time for things to be changed or new things to be added. So we just presume we have what we have and we go based on our experience. Okay, is this working for me? Is my suffering decreasing? Am I becoming more compassionate? Is there equanimity growing? You know, those are the signs that things are going well for us in practice. And so in this particular line, what we're asked to explore, um, and the translation I'm going to give you right now is from Bhikkhu Analyo, and he's the one who wrote the Satipatthana Sutta dissertation, which Joseph Goldstein based his famous book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, which you see, oh, here it is, this big book, which I know some of you have. If you don't have it, I highly recommend it. This is an amazing book. Um, so that book by Joseph Goldstein is, <laughs> here's another one. If you ever come over to my house, I have Buddhist books like all over the place. It's like lint. It's just everywhere. It's like, this is the book that it's based on, which is Bhikkhu Analyo's book. Another uh, book, book worth getting. It's pretty dense, but it's a great book. When Bhikkhu Analyo translates this line uh, in the Sai Patana, he translates it as exploring our experience, right? Any experience through the four foundations in order to cultivate bare attention or bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. Bare knowledge, continuous mindfulness. And those are pretty specific terms in the Dharma. So we're going to go with that translation. But just so you know, if you stumble across this in other articles, like in Lion's Roar or tricycle or any of these other there are other translations of this line that are significantly different which would make this a completely different talk so i'm translating i am going with uh, bhikkhu Nalio's translation of bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness as one of the things we're supposed to ground ourselves in with practice with all of the foundations of mindfulness and the reason the term bare attention is so important is that there's a lot of discussion around whether or not attention can really be bare. <laughs> bare attention usually refers to our ability to be present, non-reactive, and suspend the views, the translations, interpretations, judgments, all of that stuff that's in between our sense reality and how we make meaning of that reality. So bare attention implies that we can witness reality as it is without essentially interpreting it. So there's a little bit of a debate whether that's completely possible to have bare attention. And people often discuss whether the Buddha was really interested in bare attention as a uh, ultimate way of practicing. So there's just some, you may come across this uh, in your studies of, of the Dharma. But let's presume that the Buddha is talking about bare attention here and what we're being asked to do and why it's so important when we either get lost in our practice or we just want to reground in what is so about the Dharma itself. And so think of it this way. I feel like this is a great time to talk about this when you look at the world. So when we're asked about bare attention, one of the things we're asked to do is to reflect back on how this ego, this ego of mine, really enjoys its point of view, right? It's thinking, it's, uh, it's righteousness, it's being right, right? And how 
our interpretation of reality is easy to cling to. Now, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm going to make this declaration. I'm not the only one in this room that's ever had the experience of being right. You ever, you know that experience of feeling like you're right about something? Like, it's an interesting feeling, right? To, to feel right about something. And you also know the experience, you also know this experience, I'm sure, which is the experience where you know you're right and you really know the other person's wrong. That experience? Okay. So, bare attention is when we suspend that. When we really suspend that sense that we are in fact, our interpretation is real and right and the only way to experience or know the world. And as you may know, human beings struggle with this quite a bit, right? It's, it's okay to be right, but as soon as we think someone's wrong, then being right has to be elevated, right? Because then we have to let the other person know that we are right and they are wrong. And then there's this whole thing that transpires. So the significance of bare attention is pretty great when you consider how many challenges in the world are a result of two human beings or groups of human beings feeling right about something and knowing that the other person is wrong and not being able to get past the attachment to the view, right? The attachment to the interpretation of reality and all of the violence and man, all the stuff that comes out in the human experience from this. If you think about it, just imagine how amazing the world would be if human beings could just do that one thing, could just establish bare attention on occasion long enough to be able to calm the ego and consider that maybe our perspective isn't the only perspective. Like, it's such a huge leap towards compassion and peace and connectivity, which is why, if we're following this translation, it makes sense that it's so fundamental to the Dharma. Because if you think about the word Vipassana, right? Vipassana, which is often translated as seeing the world as it is, right? Seeing things as they are without interpretation, right? The truth of the present moment without interfering or less interfering, you might say. So we can see that if Vipassana is really about seeing the world as it is, then if we ever get lost in our practice, we might want to check back in with the ego and ask ourselves, how much am I interpreting these days? Am I lost in thought? Am I lost in view? Am I lost in judgment? And that's a great place to start, right? It's a great place to practice. It's, it's always a treasure chest, you know, worthy of opening. There's always some kind of gem in there when we look at the ego and how we like to be right about things and how we, <laughs> what's really funny is that there's, there's this other moment that I think is really awesome. The moment that you have when you think you're right, you think someone else is wrong, and in the conversation, you try and accept their point of view, but still in the back of your head, you're thinking, but in the end, I know I'm right. Like there's that moment where you're trying to connect with someone else, but really you're like, but I know I'm right and they're wrong. So that tension, that inner tension causes so much dukkha. So bear attention, right? Learning to use mindfulness to watch the clinging of view and watch the clinging of judgment and all of that good stuff. This is considered to be one of the foundations uh, that we can come back to. And we can do it with any of the foundations of mindfulness when we're practicing with them. To look at the way that the ego grasps and clings at reality to make itself the reality. That's the thing. That it makes itself the one and only reality. 
The second part of this line here is continuous mindfulness. And I do like this part of the translation because I often translate samadhi, concentration, as continuous mindfulness. I like, I like the way that works within the teachings. So I'm going to interpret this part, continuous mindfulness, as moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness that results in concentration, samadhi. I love talking about concentration because it is one of the most challenging parts of the path. It's often misunderstood. Um, and even after, in my experience, even after I think I understand it, I tend to forget about the truth of it and I have to relearn it over and over again. So I always like to revisit this in my talks because concentration is such a tricky subject in the Dharma. So what I'm gonna talk about tonight is why it's tricky, just inviting you to be awake and aware to how you think of concentration. How, how do you think of samadhi? If someone, if a new student were to come up to you and say, what is this concentration thing? Like, why do we need to be concentrated? I know it's an enlightenment factor or like, what is this? And, and what is this supposed to mean for my practice? It's important for you to just reflect like, what does it mean to you when you think of concentration? How important is it? Do you struggle with it? Or do you have confusions around it? Because I've had all of those in my practice. So let's talk about concentration because it is primary to traditional Buddhist practice. So to get us on the same page, I always like to remind us that concentration is highly debated in Buddhist schools, both in Mahayana, Theravada, within Theravada schools, there's all kinds of differing views. How much concentration do we need? What does it mean to be concentrated? It's a pretty heavy topic. But the one thing that I think we can sort of rely on is that it's important. No matter where we land, it's a very important topic. And I come to that conclusion from, from just this reflection. The concentration samadhi factor is one of our factors of awakening. It is one of the eightfold path factors. It is one of the jhana factors. And many, many teachers often talk about how continuity of mindfulness is the foundation for success in in meditation, right? Our ability to string together mind moments and really hold the mind in presence. That's the foundation of all of the wisdom that comes out of Vipassana. So no matter where we slice and dice this concept of samadhi, we do, we can fall back with some sense of confidence and faith that it really is a pretty significant subject in the Dharma, right? Major categories of teaching are related to continuous mindfulness and samadhi. So I want to remind us once again why samadhi is so important, right? And there's a variety of reasons for this. And I just like to remind myself this as well. So I'm going to talk to you about just some of the things I come back to in my head when I think of this. You might be able to say that concentration is what makes mindfulness so effective for wisdom. Concentration is really what makes mindfulness so effective as a tool, right? As an experience to awaken. And <laughs> sometimes I think of this like, so we think of it literally like concentration is simply concentrated, focused, continuous mindfulness. And it's kind of like, <laughs> this may be an inappropriate metaphor, but like, it's kind of like pouring yourself a really stiff drink. Like it, if you, if you want to, if you're out to go drink, 
right? And you want the impact of alcohol, then you want a significant amount of alcohol <laughs> to have the effect. And it is the amount of alcohol that makes the drink effective <laughs> for what you're looking for. In a very similar fashion, concentration of mindfulness increases the impact of the mindfulness. So it's a it's like a heavy dose, essentially, of mindfulness. So when we look at it, it's really helpful just to remember that it's it's a quality of, of mindfulness. It's sort of the amount, right? It's the sharpness. It's the clarity of the mindfulness in the moment and our ability to sustain it. So in that sense, it's, it's really significant. Another thing that I love remembering after I've forgotten it is that the Dharma really comes down to this in relationship to freedom. The Buddha's insight is that happiness and suffering are co-creations, that we're participating in our life so deeply that both suffering and freedom are experiences that we're participating in, right? It's not just happening on its own, that we participate in the experience of reality. And moment to moment, what we, what we experience is life, right? In any moment when we say, I am living, and this is my life experience, Part of that experience is your actual non-conscious, unconscious reaction to what's happening. So we're creating, in a sense, we're artists of the self, right? We're composers of reality, right? We get to co-construct what we're experiencing. And it's because we can do that, that freedom is possible. If we couldn't do that, suffering would just be permanent, right? We wouldn't be able to do anything, but we can do something about it. We can show up differently, participate differently, connect with each other differently, let go of our views, right? We can, we can change how we are in the world. And it's this ability to do that that leads to the freedom. And if life is only taking place in the present moment, then having a concentrated mind that can really see clearly into the present moment is hugely helpful for our liberation. Our ability to hold attention in presence, in this very moment of life, that's what allows us to be able to have the insight of awakening. So again, concentration is so important because everything is happening in the present moment. And if we can't get into the present moment, right, if we can't concentrate or sustain mindfulness moment to moment, then the mind's just wandering all over the place and it's very difficult to see what's going on. So part of the insight of Vipassana is the heart-mind training to learn to see what's going on so we can then in, in, interact with it intentionally with joy and compassion and delight and truthfulness, authenticity. So that's another thing to remember just about concentration is concentration is what grounds us in the present moment. It's what anchors ourselves and allows us to directly contact the truth of what is so moment to moment, this direct experience, that's samadhi, right? And to the degree we can do that, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to then engage with reality if we can ground ourselves in that reality. There's a, um, there's a, fr a phrase I like, I'm not gonna be able to quote it directly, but when monastics became liberated back in the day, maybe, maybe this happens still to this day, I don't know, but back in the day when folks became liberated, Usually they were off on retreat, like rain retreat or in a cave in retreat, and they would come back and 
the declaration of illumination was what needed to be done has been done. I love this for some reason. There's just something about it I just really love. What needed to be done has been done. And, and it's important to remember, in order to do what needs to be done, we need to see what needs to be seen, right? In order to do what needs to be done, we have to start by seeing what needs to be seen. So Vipassana is all about the seeing, right? And now seeing, of course, in the Dharma is more that awareness, that felt sense. It's not just, you know, eyes open seeing. But in order to do what needs to be done, we must start by seeing what needs to be seen. And in order to see what needs to be seen, we must be present. And the ability to be present, that's the samadhi. That's the concentration. So we're always kind of working on this, but sometimes we're just, we forget that how much of what we're doing is directly related in some way or another to concentration, the ability to be present with what is so in this moment. Another thing to remember about concentration is that concentration produces pleasure. It's easy to forget this, partly because it's so hard to do. <laughs> concentration it's so hard to concentrate the mind but when we can have those moments just think of those moments in your practice where the wandering mind just kind of shuts up for a change and you can really be in the body and you're with your breath and there's just that moment of ease right man those are good moments and maybe they're few and far between but when we do get them even if it's a moment or two gosh that feels good right it feels good to be able to let go and not judge, and not desire, and not cling. It's such a relief on the heart, right? It's so relaxing for the mind to have that one or two moments where the mind settles down, and we're just there. We're just there with it. That's pleasurable. And the more we can have that experience of pleasure that's based on concentration, being present with mindfulness, the more the mind wants to be there. And it's kind of a funny thing that the more we can enjoy being present, the more the, the easier it is to do such a thing, right? And so that's another thing I think it's important about concentration and why it's mentioned here in the sutta is that when we're struggling with our practice, it's helpful to ask, is my practice pleasurable these days? Am I getting some pleasure out of it? You know, and it's important to ask that because we forget that this is a path about pleasure, not about sensual pleasure, but it is about pleasure. It's about happiness. It's about joy. So on occasion when we get lost, it's important to ask, am I bored with my practice? Is my practice really hard, right? Is it kind of choppy? Is there a lot of wandering mind? Am I getting some pleasure? And if not, then we have to re revisit our enlightenment factor of concentration and remind ourselves, okay, I need to get back centered into the pleasure of presence. And we're not gonna go into those tools today, but going back to the tools that allow us to cultivate pleasure out of the present moment. A couple other stumbling blocks to concentration. And I struggled with this for quite a long time. And I think this is partly a cultural thing. I think it's partly a language thing. Oftentimes when we hear the word concentration in the West, we think straining. Like, I'm really concentrated. Like, and I don't know why that is. I think it must be a cultural thing because I know I talk to hundreds of students every year and it's very common for students to say, I don't want to get into concentration because I don't want to strain. I don't want to strive. I don't want to be overly focused because we associate that with clinging, grasping, striving, where the concentration of the Dharma is 
about is simply a balance point between being focused enough to hold our attention, but not so focused that we're creating a grasping self, right? We don't want to cling to the present moment so much that we're straining, but we do want to be concentrate. We want to have effort. There's definitely an effort to cultivating concentration and too much. And we're just creating more suffering for ourselves. It's very similar. I would think to like, um, like lifting weights, like you can lift weights in a way that doesn't injure yourself, right? You're going to, you're going to need to have focus. You're going to need to have strength. You're going to need to have the right posture. And then you can lift weights in a way that's healthy and healing. But if you take that very same weight and you're not aligned properly and your posture's off and you don't have the strength or the endurance in the moment and you try to force your way into it, you're going to pull a muscle or do some damage. And concentration is really the same thing that if we do strain too much, if we get angry at the mind for wandering away, if we get down on ourselves, you know, where we're like, oh, I can't do this and it's taking so long and the mind wanders. When we start getting in those self-deprecating moments, then we're straining. That's straining to be concentrated. And that's definitely would not be considered skillful effort. The skillful effort of concentration should be energized, but relaxed, should be ardent, alert, and mindful, clinging enough to be present, but not grasping to the point that we're creating a whole new set of suffering for ourselves. So keeping in mind that healthy concentration isn't like a contraction of the heart. You're not contracting to be concentrated. You are just bringing a balance of energy to the present moment. And it can feel intense, but as long as there's not strain, then you're okay. Another really big stumbling block for folks around samadhi is, has to do with equanimity. So oftentimes we spend quite a bit of our practice letting go which is great as speaking from someone living in North America and in <laughs> North American culture, we could use a lot of letting go. Like we, we grasp, we cling, we're covetous. There's a lot of greed there. So that part that we're sort of brought up in our culture, it's a huge relief coming to the Dharma and coming up with this idea of equanimity and practicing, decreasing our preferential orientation, letting that ego down a little bit, right? Taking it off its high horse, uh, and letting go. So equanimity and having a balanced response to things feels really good for us coming from our culture in particular. And so we spend a lot of time practicing the enlightenment factor of equanimity. And that's the passive enlightenment factor, right? Because you're letting go, you're, you're, you're relinquishing, right? You're stepping back and really letting things be as they are. And this is connected, of course, to bear attention, right? Not interpreting, not reacting, non-judgment. That's our equanimity factor. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. Now, concentration is an active factor. It's the balance to equanimity. So concentration really requires us to rev up the energy a little bit. And sometimes we feel a little insecure or fearful about being too active in our practice. Because as soon as we start being active, we're afraid of creating too much of an I, right? I want to be concentrated. I want to have experience of jhana, those kind of things. Or we, we start to notice that as we increase the energy, we can feel that sense of self arising. And that's okay. There's a healthy sense of self in instigating samadhi. But 
sometimes we're afraid. Like I talk to students quite frequently. I know I was for the longest time. Just we're afraid that we're grasping, we're clinging, and we're putting too much energy because we spend a lot of time working with the passive factors of the path without remembering that there are active factors, effort, investigation, concentration. These are the more active factors that take a little more participation than equanimity, a little more uh, participation than joy even, or even the mindfulness factor for that matter. So noticing any fear we have about creating a self in relationship to practice is something we, we need to pay attention to. And oftentimes it comes up in relationship to concentration. And I think I actually wrote down, give me a second, let's see here. Did I write down? Oh, I did. Okay. I wanted to just talk a little bit about the wandering mind in relationship to concentration for a second. So if we can accept that the enlightenment factors, some are passive and some are active. And sometimes in our meditation, we're going to have to be engaging a little bit more and that it's okay to engage. Um, again, we don't have to engage with clinging. And the Buddha actually does say that a little bit of clinging to the goal is necessary for us to practice. And some clinging to the path until we let go at the end is, is also part of it. We have to have some clinging to the Eightfold Path, otherwise we can't walk it. So some identity making, like I am a meditator, right? May I be free. That's healthy sense of self. We eventually have to let that go. But in our practice, there's gonna be some I making. There's gonna be some my making that's okay. And we can get a little bit too nervous about, oh my gosh, I'm creating a self. <laughs> and then we like, we don't wanna practice. So it can have this back, this sort of backsliding effect. I know for, my, for me, for, my, for this self, this self has often feared creating too much of a self in my practice. And so I like, I sort of like don't want to do the, the stronger parts of the path, the more active parts. So relationship to the wandering mind, which I think can be helpful. The wandering mind does not wander without some permission. This is a tough one, but uh, think about this. The wandering mind are just your unconscious habits. These habits have been built based on your intentions. So the wandering mind is doing what you've trained it to do. <laughs> the wandering mind is wandering because you've trained it to do so. And, and it enjoys it, of course, that's consciousness. But the wandering mind does wander because we've invited it to do that. And we've trained it to, to push away from things it doesn't like and grasp for things that it does like. And but But when the mind does wander, it's important to know in that moment, there is some consent. There is some relinquishing and allowing the mind to kind of flitter away into the past or roll into the future, depending on where it wants to get, where it wants to go. And it's just important to remember that, you know how it feels like when you're meditating and you're like, oh, I just really want to be concentrated and the mind wanders away and it feels like that's happening to you. Like you want to be concentrated. And if you had your way, you would stay right here. But the wandering mind that wants to do its own thing. So it's it's want it's wandering away, not your wandering away. It's wandering away. So it's important to remember that you are the wandering mind. That's you <laughs> doing something. And it feels like it's separate, like it's not my mind, it's the mind wandering away. And with deeper practice and increased concentration, we begin to see that. We're cooperating with that, that wandering, right? We're cooperating with it. And that insight allows us to remember that in order to cultivate concentration, we have to engage it. We have to engage the wandering mind. 
and that engagement requires effort, a little bit of selfing, a little bit of clinging, a little bit of desire, right? I want to be concentrated. So we have to create a positive self-concept in those moments when the mind is wandering. We have to say, hey, come back, please. I want you to come back into this moment. So there's going to be some energy exerted in order for concentration to arise. And I think we, we just forget that sometimes, that concentration is cultivated. It's we work on it, right? We bring it into existence by engaging the wandering mind, by interacting with the hindrances actively, with an interest and a curiosity and an energy. And if we can do that without fear of selfing, not too much selfing, you know, if you go running after the wandering mind and try and tackle it and drag it back to the present moment, probably too much selfing. Like, you don't want to do that. Like, oh, I've got you and I'm never going to let you go. That's probably too much. But if you can be comfortable with, okay, there's going to be some selfing here. There's going to be some eye making, some my making, a little bit of clinging, a little bit of grasping. Then you're back in the game and you've got skill, skillful effort and you're balancing the factors. It is the skillful use of mindfulness that allows concentration to build. And once concentration has been established, it really helps with being able to see all of the other things that we're invited to see in the Dharma. And I'll just give one example today. Last week, we were talking about impermanence. And we were talking about how if we get lost in the practice and we're feeling a little off kilter, just look for something that's changing, <laughs> which is everything. So just bring, you want to you get grounded in practice? Look around. Can you find Anicca? There you go. Now you're back in the Dharma. So in order to see Anicca clearly, we have to be present long enough to see it, right? So what we start to realize is concentration helps us to see impermanence. And this is how it works. So the longer we're in the present moment, the more likely, the more likely we're able to catch the mind in the act of having something arise or have something pass away. Oftentimes we only catch one or the other because the mind's blipping all over the place. So we start to see, oh, I'm getting less angry in this moment or, um, oh, I'm starting to feel agitated. Then the mind wanders off and we don't know what happens. It's like... It's only like half the story, right? We watch something pop into existence that we can catch. The mind wanders and we don't know the conclusion of the story. Keeping the mind present in reality allows us to see the whole story, the whole story of impermanence arising and passing away. And your mind can become so sharp and not with any kind of magical <laughs> intention, but just, just with practice, the mind can be so sharp that you can feel thoughts arise before they become thoughts. You can feel the energy, the impulse of thinking, and you can feel the energy, and then you can watch thinking arise. And then you can see how that thinking creates an emotion and how the emotion creates more thinking. And if you can hold awareness long enough, then you can watch that whole process pass away again. So samadhi is hugely helpful with being able to see the whole life cycle of impermanence, right? The whole life cycle of craving, the whole life cycle of aversion. And the the bigger the life cycle, the greater the wisdom. It's kind of like, I was trying to think of a metaphor for this today. I don't know if this is this will land, but here's what I came up with. I, I struggle with this. I'm like, I got to come up with a metaphor for, for this. What can I think of? So this is what I thought of. So it would be like putting on a movie. So you want to watch this movie. So you put on the movie and you press play 
and you watch like three or four minutes and then you fast forward at 10 minutes, press play again, watch three or four minutes, fast forward another 10 minutes and you watch the whole movie like that. And this is a movie you've never seen. So all you're getting is bits and pieces of reality. You're not getting the whole storyline right now. You can fill in the gaps a little bit because you're like, okay, where did that one character go? It's like, okay, maybe this happened. So you can, your mind's going to fill in the gaps, even if it's not present. But imagine being able to watch the whole story from beginning to end. All of the insight you get from, from the story of the arising and passing away of moment to moment phenomenon. So samadhi is so important because it gives us the whole life cycle of the experience. This is in part why being on retreat is so helpful for cultivating samadhi or doing a day long, right? Doing a few hours of meditation because as the mind quiets down, we really get to see things arising and passing away. On the first day of retreat, you might be kind of tired and fatigued. So you watch as a whole day of tiredness arises. And then on day three, it's gone. Like you've watched the whole life cycle of these agitations and these energy states simply pass away. Now, if you're only sitting for just 10 seconds, you don't get to see the whole birth and rising and passing of that stuff. So that's another really amazing thing about samadhi, continuous mindfulness, is just that it allows you to see more and have a richer experience for what's going on in the present moment. So all of the other things that we're invited to do just become deeper, richer, more continuous. So I'll conclude with one thing, one more thing about samadhi, just to bring this to conclusion. I know a lot of us, myself included, we feel bad or guilty or even despondent sometimes if the mind doesn't behave, <laughs> if it doesn't if it doesn't stay present and we don't feel like our minds are very concentrated, that is totally normal dharma, okay? If that's what you've experienced, you are a member of the club. <laughs> you're you're not going to get kicked out. That's just the nature of things. Like a lot of us have this sense of like concentration should have arrived already and I'm just like the wandering mind is still here. It's just a lifetime of practice. <clears throat> Our goal is to be acquainted with the hindrances, to be mindful when they arise and pass away. And then there's these moments where the mind quiets and we can be grateful for those for those moments. But we don't have to feel like we're behind the times or we're not doing well just because we struggle. Concentration is hard. It's considered to be one of the, the most difficult parts of the path for everybody. So just remember that when you're concentrating. Another thing that people get insecure about, again, myself included, is we're householders, right? We're bi I don't know about you, but I'm super busy. No matter, oh, this is such a struggle with me. No matter how unbusy I try to make myself, my life is so busy all the time. And it's hard to have continuous mindfulness. Like, I wake up, I intend to be mindful, and then it's dinner time, and I haven't been mindful for the whole day. It's like, what happened? Like, I was going to be mindful. No mindfulness. So, remember that we're... We're living in a very agitated space. We're living in a very um, sensory, right? A very sensory experience every day, loud, continuous. It's hard to have continuous mindfulness in that space. All we can do is we wake up day to day. We intend to have continuous mindfulness. Mind wanders away. We lovingly bring it back, right? We just coming back to presence, coming back to presence, coming back to presence. Eventually, the habit of that intention works. And it takes 10,000 times, right? 10,000 times, no matter how much is going on in life. 
Um, so just go easy on yourself. But remember, it's important. It's an important part of the path. Every one of us can have can have it. And as you see here, if this line is translated truthfully, <laughs> one of the things the Buddha invites us to come back to, continuous mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, moment to moment. And Goinka's famous saying that all Goinka, Goinkaites, those of us who've studied with Goinkaji, uh, know, Goinka used to say, continuity of mindfulness is the secret of success. Continuity of mindfulness is the secret. A life in mindfulness, moment to moment. That's the secret. No other secret. Just bringing the mind back over and over again. That's the secret to awakening. So... I leave you with that this evening, my friends, just an exploration and reminder of the power and uh, really is a powerful tool to center the mind and presence. It really is. <sighs> All right, my friends, it is 8.31, one minute past our time. Oh, I want to sincerely thank you for showing up and practice with me this evening. Thanks so much for being a part of this. This is so wonderful. Thanks for your kind attention and... Um, yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be back next week for the fourth and final part of this uh, series of talk. We're going to talk about clinging. The last line that we've been doing is letting go of everything. And so we'll talk about the clinging aggregates, which I don't think I've given a talk on that in probably three years. So I'll be giving a talk on that. For those who have to go, much love to you. Thanks for coming. For those who can stay, we'll do a little bit of meta. couple long slow deep breaths in through the nose out through the mouth and on the exhale just relax deeply back into the body just noticing what it feels like in this moment how does your body feel And to the degree it's possible, just bring as much of this amazing embodied being into awareness as possible. The arms and the legs and the hands and the feet. Just really feeling into the, the fullness of the body. And again, let's bring awareness to the part of the body we call the heart. And give it a little nudge by taking a few deep breaths. Feeling into the heart. Awake and aware to embodied being. The heart that is gladdened with present moment awareness. From that space of grounding, let's wish well for all beings. Let's wish that all beings share in the benefits of this practice. 
that our healing, our transformation, our awakening, may that allow us to show up in the world as kind, generous, and loving beings. May we wish that all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be free from harm. Let us open our hearts and wish that all beings know true joy true kindness and true compassion in this life. Thank you, my friends. So good to see you. Please be well. And I will see you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.